You know, it's awesome to be able to be able to worship the Lord with you this morning and even just to hear about being free from the bondage of debt, right? Praise God that his word is sufficient for our lives. If you're new here, welcome. Glad to have you with us this morning. My name is Nick Lees and I serve as a senior pastor here. And today is week seven of eight of our summer series. We've been trying to answer this question all summer. What is love, right? It's been a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians 13. And my hope is that if you've been here for the past six weeks, that you've been challenged in your view and your application of love in your own life. I personally have found this study to be very practical and very relevant, and that's not because I'm the guy teaching it. I'm not saying that to puff myself up. I'm saying that I needed to learn about these principles in my own walk. And it's been very helpful for my family as we talk through what we learned, as we think through, okay, well, how do we apply what the Bible says about this topic? And even in our staff meetings, we, we, each week we have a staff meeting on Tuesdays and we share, you know, what was God teaching you? What was he challenging you from the word last week? And so this past Tuesday we were doing that and someone was sharing about how they were challenged and a question that they had been asking themselves that week. And as they shared, I thought, okay, you're right. I need to ask myself that same question. And so there it was again, God convicting me over and over and over. What is love? What is biblical love? And how am I? living it out. I hope that's been, that process has been happening in your life this very month and this very summer. Right? God's word is sufficient and it's authoritative for our life. It has answers. And this morning as we get started, I wanted to go back over the characteristics of love one by one, just to kind of slow down and remember what have we learned so far. So let's start with the first one we heard about was love is patient meaning it's long-suffering in relationship with another. And so rather than being quick to anger, love ought to be slow-tempered. Do you have a love that is patient? Then we heard love is kind, meaning that it seeks the welfare or the good of another. It's for your good, it's for your benefit, not mine. We see this in God's kindness, which is meant to lead us to repentance, and to salvation. So do you have a love that is kind? We also learned that love does not envy, right? Meaning it's not upset over someone else's achievements or someone else's successes. It doesn't burn with jealousy. It builds God's kingdom, not its own. Do you have a love that does not envy? Or how about this, love does not boast, It doesn't behave as a braggart or as a windbag. It doesn't speak in a way that causes discord or draws excessive attention to oneself. It's not about me, me, me. Instead, it puts on humility. It boasts in the Lord. Do you have a love that does not boast? Love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. It's not conceiving of an exalted self-conception. Again, very similar to the boasting piece, it's not about me, it's about cultivating a big view of God and who he is, and then having a right view of myself, a humble view of myself. Love seeks to serve rather than be served. So do you have a love that is not arrogant? We also learned that love is not rude. It does not behave disgracefully, dishonestly, or indecently. Rather, it seeks to follow God's will and his ways, his standards in life. It delights in obeying God. 
It says, do you have a love that is not rude? Or how about this? Love does not insist on its own ways. It's not seeking its own interests. Again, life is all about loving God and loving others. It's not about me. It's about how can I serve and bless you. So the question we ought to be asking ourselves if we're practicing love is how can I help you? Not how can you help me? Do you have a love that does not insist on its own way? And then we heard that love is not irritable, right? It's not provoked to wrath. And so when someone else is pushing your buttons and and, and pressing in on you, rather than responding in sinful anger, you respond in biblical love. And the way that we do that is by getting the focus, again, off of ourselves and back onto God and loving others. Do you have a love that is not irritable? Or how about love is not resentful, meaning it keeps no record of wrongs. It's not trying to justify its own sinful responses by the way someone else has has treated them. Look at what you've done, right? I'm justified in how I'm treating you because of all these things that you've done to me. Love doesn't do that. Instead, it practices forgiveness readily and regularly. It's seeking to keep short accounts and provide relational peace. Do you have a love that is not resentful? How about this? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's not happy or glad when sin is occurring. Right? It doesn't rejoice in sin. Instead, it's grieved by sin. And it wants to handle sin in a way that pleases Christ. It wants true repentance, true life change. Not simply worldly sorrow that never results in anything changing. So do you have a love that doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing? And then lastly, we learned that love rejoices with the truth. Right? It is happy, it is glad when things are going the way that God desires them to go, the way that he's designed them to be. You see, the truth is whatever is in accordance with fact or reality. And God's the one who determines fact or reality. So when things are going God's way, love rejoices in that. Do you have a love that rejoices with the truth? Right, and as you look at the screen, right, that's a full screen. There's a lot going on there. I mean, wow. Love is rich. It's deep. It's amazing, right? Is that the kind of love that we have in our lives? Is this true of you? Or are there ways that you need to take steps and grow? Well, guess what? We haven't even touched today's passage. There's still more to come. Biblical love is even richer than what we've got on the screen here. And so why don't I have the ushers come forward at this time? We're gonna dive into our passage for today. If you're here and you don't have a copy of the word of God, Please put your hand in the air, and the ushers will gladly give you a Bible to use. We're going to go ahead and turn into the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 13. So go ahead and get your Bibles out, get your smartphones out, whatever you're using to read God's Word this morning, and you're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the back half of the Bible, page 822 of the one they're handing out to you right now. And as you're getting there, I just want to remind you that today we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table at the end of our service. And so these Sundays for me are always very special because it's an opportunity to celebrate and to remember what Christ has done, that he has won, that he's victorious over sin and death. 
right? Because of his sacrifice, his perfect example of biblical love, we have freedom. We're no longer enslaved. He laid down his life so that we could be free. Thank you, Jesus. Well, let's go ahead and read our passage for today. It's a single verse. It's 1 Corinthians 13. We're reading verse 7 this morning. Here's what it says. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'll read it again. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Right? So on top of all of the things we've already heard about love, all of those amazing attributes, now Paul adds four more. Right? Four more that just continue to stretch our understanding of what biblical love truly is. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. And even as we read it aloud, you can hear some of the re- repetition there, right? The repeated pattern that Paul goes through. Love, insert verb here, all things. Right? If you are here this morning and you're reading from the NIV, you might notice that it translates it always, right? Love always, whatever the verb is, right? The idea is that love never gives up on these things. Love never stops doing these things. Love is inexhaustible. It continues forever. In fact, when we get to verse eight next week, we'll see Paul explicitly state that. Love never ends. It carries on into eternity. And so the things that we're talking about this summer the things that we're talking about today, you're actually going to carry these lessons with you all the way into eternity. You're going to be practicing this stuff, growing in this stuff, even when you're standing in the presence of God. How cool is that? This is important. It's amazing. Love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. And maybe as you think about that, as you read that, or hear it read aloud, you think, well, what does Paul mean? By all things. Right, does that mean that love makes you a doormat and you just gotta endure through whatever life throws your way, or you've gotta always trust people who have shown themselves to be untrustworthy? Those are fair questions to ask. We need to answer those questions, right? Because that's not what Paul is teaching. And it's actually helpful to go back earlier into the letter to see how Paul clarifies this very concept. So if you'd like, if you have your Bible still open, go back to 1 Corinthians 6, chapter. Chapter 6, verse 12. And we're going to see two different ways that Paul clarifies all things in the same letter. So 1 Corinthians 6, 12, here's what was written. So he shares one of the quotes that the Corinthians had sent him. The Corinthians had said to Paul, all things are lawful for me. Paul says back to them, but not all things are helpful. Well, all things are lawful for me, they say again. Paul's response but I will not be dominated by anything. Right, so here we see Paul's contradicting this argument that the Corinthians were presenting that, Paul, we can, we can use our bodies however we want. All things are lawful, and then specifically they're talking about how they handle sexuality. But a blanket statement like that is dangerous for us as Christians. And that's why Paul clarifies. He's saying, look, be careful about using this all things logic you see, God gives instruction in his word. 
clear instruction about how we're to handle ourselves and how we're to treat the bodies that he's given us, how to handle sexuality. And so a good principle of Bible study is to always read all of the scriptures and to interpret passages in light of what God says elsewhere in the scriptures. We have to understand God's views and his teachings on the topic. All things are lawful is a dangerous position to hold. I want to show you a second time this comes up. It's in chapter 10. So if you would like, you can turn to chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. And we're going to see the same quote come up. Again, the Corinthians say, well, all things are lawful. Paul again responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So now Paul's confronting them. They're wanting to use their freedoms. They want to say, well, we can do whatever we want with with meat that's been sacrificed to idols. That's not a big deal anymore. Paul says, well, rather than all things being lawful, look, if, if what you're about to do doesn't love your neighbor, then you shouldn't do it. There's a qualification to this freedom that you now have. You need to evaluate, will this love another? Will this build them up? And so what we're seeing is Paul doesn't give a blanket approval to all things. He says you need to evaluate the rest of Scripture. You need to understand whatever it is you're talking about in light of what God says. All things are not permissible. Use your godly, sanctified wisdom when you make decisions. That's a good principle for us today. We always need to be students of the Word to go back and say, what does God say about this? And so when we read here now in chapter 13, verse 7, where it says love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things, we have to say, okay, are there any qualifications that we need to know about? Is Paul going to say, okay, all things in certain contexts? Well, that's what I'm going to try to develop as we look at each one of these this morning, try to explain how that works. Now, if you're here and you are one of the avid note-takers, like I like to take notes when I'm not preaching, when I'm in the audience, I like to take notes when Jack's preaching, wherever it is. If you're here today and that's you, I have to say at the outset, I'm very sorry for you, um, because today, if you've noticed, we've got four terms that we're trying to work through, and so I'm just frankly not sure how you organize your bulletin in a way that's helpful, so good luck for you. I have no answers for this, but I just wanted to at least help you prepare your heart, right, as we get into this. You've got a lot to fit in. So let's walk through each of these terms as they come. The first one is this, love bears all things. Love bears all things. So again, Paul uses a term that's pretty rare in the New Testament. It only only occurs four times. But each time he uses this word, it conveys the idea of endurance or the idea of not giving way easily or even to bear up against difficulties. So to bear all things implies endurance, to not give way easily or to bear up against difficulties. And one of the ways that Paul uses this passage or this word, rather, is in chapter 9, verse 12. So I want to show you that. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure, there's the word, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's not giving way easily. He's bearing up against difficulties that have come, Enduring anything, which coincidentally that word for anything is the same word as all things in chapter 13, verse 7. 
And why does he do that? Why does he endure all things? Why does he endure anything? So that the gospel might be shared, that there may be no hindrances to the gospel going forth. Right? Paul's willing to bear up against difficulties because he wants the gospel to spread. And so here we see a positive affirmation of when bearing all things is good. If it allows the gospel to go forth, if it allows the gospel to be spread, then absolutely you should bear all things. Second time where Paul uses this word comes in his letter to the Thessalonians. So in 1 Thessalonians 3, here's what Paul says to them. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, right, there's the word, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in the faith. Let me remind you of the context of Paul's relationship with that church. So Paul had had the privilege of going to Thessalonica. He got to spend three Sundays there, or three Sabbath days, so it would have been Saturday for the Jews. And he got to preach and share the gospel in their synagogue. And Jesus allowed many to repent and believe. He was working in the hearts of many. The Jews didn't like that. The Jewish leaders didn't like that. And so they raised up a mob, and, and they ran Paul out of town. So his stay there was pretty short. It was abbreviated. If you want, you could write Acts 17 in your bulletin and go read that account later. So Paul, Paul's out of, out of the city now. Three weeks in, he saw a lot of people come to Christ, but had to leave. So he's got a, a desire to, to reignite that relationship, to continue to teach, to continue to exhort, to continue to help them grow, and yet he can't go there. It's dangerous. And so he's writing now of how he's, he's willing to bear that difficulty. He's willing to endure the pain of not being able to go back to them. And this love was bearing all things because he couldn't see them or minister to them. But as their desire gave way to wanting them to be exhorted and wanting them to be encouraged, they decided to send Timothy. Send Timothy back to the city to continue the ministry. And so what we're seeing now is there's a couple of ways that these passages linked together. The first one was love bears all things so that the gospel could go forth. This time, he bore all things and then even actually stopped bearing all things so that the gospel could go forth. And it's a helpful thing to think about. The decision on whether to bear up and endure should be based on what will promote the gospel. Right? So if you're going to bear all things, you ought to do that because it's going to promote the gospel. If the gospel is being hindered by you bearing all things, then you should stop bearing all things so that the gospel can go forth. That's the common theme here. What will bless others? What will promote the gospel? And the reason why we need to make that distinction is because it's easy to take these verses and misuse them and abuse them. Right? A sinful spouse could say to his or her honey, love bears all things, so get happy about my poor attitude, sweetie. Right? You have to tolerate my sin. You can't, you can't confront me on this. Get over it. Bear with it. That's not what is being taught here by Paul. Love bears all things so that the gospel goes forth and is promoted for the glory of God and for the good of others. Love doesn't make excuses for sin. Love doesn't use this verse to justify its sin or to get out of jail free from conviction. That would be unloving to not address sin. 
And an amazing example of love bearing all things is Jesus Christ in his last weeks here on earth. See, Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem. He knew what would happen there. He knew that he would be crucified and he would die. He knew that he was bearing the weight of our sin. And yet if you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is out in front leading the way to Jerusalem calling his followers to follow him as he heads to what is inevitably his death. He's enduring in the face of difficulties. His love was so great that he didn't excuse our sin. He died for it. He paid the price so that you and I might have the hope of salvation. Love bears all things. And love bears All things is the kind of love that points people to their need for Christ. It bears up against the the difficulties of someone's sin against you so that they might see that there's a better way. You're not bearing all things to just be a doormat. You're bearing all things so that you can point them that there is a better way in Christ, that they need Jesus. So you're not trying to lash out. You're not trying to get even. You're trying to show them you need to trust in Christ. Biblical love doesn't grow tired of bearing or enduring all things. And when you have this kind of love, it's a very powerful testimony. It cries out the sufficiency of Christ. Well, not only does love bear all things, love also believes all things. And another way of translating this part of the verse would would be love never loses faith. Love never loses faith. Paul's tying into what he's about to speak in verses 8 to 13. And in verse 13, he says this, Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And the word there for faith is the same same grouping of words that's used here in verse 7 for believe. Faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. They never end. And the word here, love believes all things, is a common word. Here's what it means. To consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. To consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Now again, you gotta be careful, right? How do you attach all things to that? If love believes all things, there's some danger there. Paul's not saying throw all your wisdom and discretion out the window in your relationships with others. We know that there are people in our lives who probably aren't worthy of our trust. They've done things to damage that. And I've actually found a couple of commentators who gave some helpful advice on this. So I want to share two quotes with you. First is from Gordon Fee, and here's how he puts it. The life that is so touched by the never-ceasing love of God in Christ is in turn enabled by the Spirit to love others in the same way. It trusts God in behalf of the one loved, hopes to the end that God will show mercy in that person's behalf. And so what we're saying is it's because of the love that you've been shown that you're then able to love others. Your trust isn't necessarily in that person. Your trust is in your great God, the one who's rescued and redeemed you, who sent his son to die for you. As Christians, because we trust in God, that changes the way that we interact with others. My stance towards you, my disposition towards you is different. I love because of how great I've been loved. 
Leon Morris also provides some additional clarity. He starts out by saying, always trust, which is the NIV's translation, always trust, points to the quality that it is ever ready to allow for circumstances and to see the best in others. This does not mean that love is gullible, but that it does not think the worst, as is the way of the world. It retains its faith. Love is not deceived by the pretenses of any rogue, but it is always ready to give the benefit of the doubt. So love believes the best about another person. It doesn't start from a negative assumption. It doesn't assume, you're out to get me. The way that you said that was meant to cut and to wound me. You're intentionally ignoring me. It doesn't make assumptions about a person's heart and their motives, the things that are going on inside of them that we have no way of knowing. But we actually see this kind of behavior quite frequently in our lives. Think back to the last argument that you had. Did you make any assumptions about the person who you were arguing with? I can't believe they said that. I know why they said that. I know what they were doing. Oh, I can read that body language. I know exactly what message they're trying to communicate with that. Right? They're out to get me. They're communicating poorly on purpose. Those are assumptions. Those are all ways that love is failing to believe the best about that person. So let's, let's kind of put this in a scenario, right? If I send you an email or a text message and I never get a response from you, what happens next? Right, if love isn't believing the best in that interaction, I begin to assume, well, they're ignoring me. A little bit later, wow, they clearly hate me, right? Oh my goodness, they're out to get me. And if I continue down this path, right, before long, I'm gonna have you out front of the church picketing, saying to the whole town, this guy is a horrible person, don't come here. Right, that's the path of love not believing the best. It escalates quickly. And then what happens when we run into each other on a Sunday morning, right? Maybe in between services. Well, that's gonna be awkward, won't it? You're gonna think, well, what's, no big deal. Yeah, I mean, you probably forgot to respond. You got busy with life. Meanwhile, I'm over here with the cold sweats and I'm like shaking. I'm like, please don't hurt me. Please don't lash out at me. Oh my goodness, what are you thinking about me? Right, it's, it's ridiculous. And yet this happens so often. Love believes the best. It's eager to give the benefit of the doubt to not assume the worst. Now, love is not asking us to put our trust in those who are not trustworthy, but rather to trust in the one who made us and made them and to be willing to change our stance or our disposition towards them. I trust in God. I'm secure in my vertical relationship with the Lord, so that allows me to then love you, to extend that love horizontally to others. Love believes all things. Love also hopes all things. So another way of translating this part of the verse would be love never gives up hope. Love hopes all things or love never gives up hope. And again, Paul's tying this into what's about to come next. Hope abides. It never ends. And the word here for hopes means to look forward to something with the implication of confidence about something coming to pass. To look forward to something with implication of confidence about something coming to pass. Again, we've got to be careful about how we apply all things along with that. 
Paul's not saying to the Corinthians, hey, you should just be naive and hope in all things that whatever you hope for, then yes, you're going to get it. It's, it's true in Christ. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying love doesn't give up hope. It doesn't accept failure as the final word. Because as a Christian, you have hope. You have every reason to have hope. See, Paul's pointing them to the confidence that they can have in light of who God is and what he has done. He's one. God has securely placed Christians into his family. And we know where we're spending eternity. We're going to be with him in heaven. And because of that truth, biblical love has every reason to hope. We can hope in all things. We don't give up hope. Because no matter what happens in our lives, we know where we will be one day. God is victorious over sin, over death, and we have the privilege of joining with him, spending eternity with him. We're confident about what's coming. That confidence provides great hope. Jesus' own words to his disciples and The Gospel of John gave them great hope and should give us great hope. I want to share with you John 14, verses 1 through 6. It's Jesus speaking here, and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' response, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This passage is right in the middle of Jesus living out biblical love for us. Right, It's right in the middle of him preparing to go to the cross and bear the weight of our sins so that we could be declared righteous. For sinners like you and, and me to be brought into his family, to be adopted as sons or daughters of God. And truths like these provide us with a great foundation of hope to love others from. And we see it in how Paul ministers to the Corinthians. He doesn't give up hope for them. Even when they're being foolish, even when they're pursuing and stuck in many forms of sin, Paul doesn't give up hope. He continues to write letters to them. He continues to engage them because he's hoping that they will repent, they will change. Let's go back to the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1. Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the reason that Paul has hope for them. It's not because of who they are. It's not because of what they've done. It's because God has given them grace 
in Christ. Christ is the one who sustains them, and God is faithful. That's, again, who God is and what he's done. That's the foundation of Paul's hope. That's the foundation of of our hope. It's because God is trustworthy. It's because he's faithful that our hope never gives up. It never fails. That Paul's hope for the Corinthians doesn't give up. It never fails. Love hopes all things. And lastly, love endures all things. And this word here is a slightly bit different, similar to what we heard earlier for love bears all things, but it is different. It means this, to maintain a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition, to stand one's ground, to hold out, to endure. So there is some overlap, but there is some distinctions here. Another way of translating this would be love never gives up. Love endures all things. Love never gives up. And again, there's no better example of this kind of love than Jesus Christ's love and willingness to endure the sin, the shame, the scorn of the cross. No better example. His love endured it all so that you and I could have victory over sin and death. He rose from the tomb. He's the one who had victory, but he gives us victory as well. And it's his enduring love that enables the Corinthians and that enables you and I to love one another. See, because God has loved you, because he's endured in the face of your sin and your rebellion, you are now able to imitate him. And you can endure in the face of others' sins against you. So your love must never give up on others. Because Christ did not give up on you. So when you find yourself in the the thick of it, right, in the midst of another tough situation, another argument with a loved one, another disagreement about how to handle a situation at work, another update from the doctor that just knocks the feet out from under you, love endures. Rather than throwing in the towel and saying, I've had it, I'm done here, you choose to turn your eyes to Christ and you remember how he didn't give up on you, he endured for you. And allow that enduring love of Christ to equip you for this newest battle. And so wade back into the conflict. Endure in the midst of that trial with the resolve that I will endure because he endured. Seek the good of that person. Make it your aim to resolve the situation in a way that would please Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Because love endures all things. Now at this point, there's some things that we need to stop and and consider here. If you've been listening and paying close attention, you've noticed there's a, a bit of a pattern that's been established. Each of these attributes that we've hit on this morning is best exemplified in God. In his person, in his work. right? Especially the finished work of Jesus Christ. God has perfectly portrayed everything we've learned thus far, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Like we said earlier, biblical love is it's rich. It's deep. It's amazing. But how quick are we as humans to just water it all down? Right? To take what God has given us that's so deep, rich, and amazing and to just completely misuse it and to make it all about us getting what I want, when, when I want it, and how I want it, right? Love is no longer about glorifying God and, and loving and serving you. It's 
You exist to serve me. That's worldly love. That's a far cry from what God intended for us and God's best for us. Maybe you're here and you're saying, yeah, I see how my love falls far short of what God wants from me. Maybe you're fast to give up on others, to condemn them for their faults, to assume the worst about them, and then to respond accordingly. Maybe you've given up hope that people in your life will ever change, so you just write them off and and cut them off. If any of those things are true about you, then what we're learning today is confronting you where you're at. You must change. You're lacking in biblical love. And what we've been hearing is that the only way to change, to be able to put on this kind of biblical love, is to first and foremost know God, the one who is the source of this love. He's the one who models it for us in his interactions with his own son and with sending Christ to this earth. So if you're here and you're saying, I want to change, I want to grow, I don't want to be stuck where I'm at, it comes back to knowing Jesus Christ. There's no way for us to pull ourselves up by our own strength to make these changes in our own ability. Whether you're here and you're a Christian or you're not, regardless of what you believe, you can't do it on your own. The only way to change is through the power of God at work in you as an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. See, the scriptures make it very clear that without Christ, without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we're dead in our sin. They also make it clear that that Christians are called to continue growing in our faith. We're not to just sit on our laurels. We're to keep changing, to keep growing, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that saved us. One last passage I want to point out to you. It's Paul's teaching in his letter to the Colossians. He said to them, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So you're here this morning and you find yourself in one of two positions. You're either here and you're wrestling with what you believe, you, you would freely explain, you know, say, well, I haven't professed faith in Christ. That's not where I'm at today. In which case, you need to consider what we've just read, right? Paul says, if that's you, you're alienated and you're hostile in mind. You're, you're doing evil deeds. You're not reconciled to God. And so if that's you, or maybe you're here and you're saying, well, no, I follow Christ. Right? Both positions are called to take the next step of faith. And so if you're in position one where you're here and you don't believe in God, you certainly haven't made a choice to admit that you're a sinner in need of Christ, then the next step of faith for you would actually be the first step of faith. It's being willing to admit, yes, I am a rebel. Yes, I have gone my own way. Yes, I do need to be saved. And I know that's a big step, but I want to encourage you to consider what we've talked about this morning. And if you're here and you're on the other side of things, if you say, yeah, well, I've professed faith in Jesus Christ. I know that I need a Savior. I'm here, and, I, and I'm following him. The challenge for you is to evaluate, well, what's the next step of faith for you? How does your love need to change in order to be more like Christ, to grow in biblical love? Where is it that you're failing to walk in love? And what you see and what you identify there, that then is an opportunity 
to confess and to say, God, help me to change. Help me to be more like you in this area. Help me to put into practice what I say that I believe. Well, I mentioned earlier that today we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table together. If you were here back in June, we got to actually study chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, and we got to hear several purposes for the Lord's table. And I just want to remind us of them this morning. One, it's an opportunity to come together as the church, right, to gather together, to be unified in our midst, to make sure there's nothing between us. But then it's also an opportunity to remember what Christ has done, his sacrifice on the cross and in the empty tomb. And so at this time, I'm going to have our ushers come forward and get ready to serve the elements to us. And as they come up, I want to explain a couple of things about this particular celebration. See, the Lord's table is an opportunity for Christians to worship together. It reminds us that we are a part of the church, which is Christ's bride, his bride that he shed his blood for. And because Jesus intended this to be a celebration for Christians, for all of us, this is an opportunity for us to evaluate where we stand with God. So again, if you're here and there's not been a definite time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you can let the elements pass pass you by in just a moment as they pass them. No one's going to judge you for that. That's not what we're here to do today. This is an opportunity for you instead to pray, to reflect on what we've talked about, to consider whether today might be the day of salvation for you. For Christians, we also need to make sure that we've got our sin handled, that we're clean before God and before our brothers and sisters. Is there anything that needs to be addressed? And if that's the case, now's the time to do it, to make sure that we can take the table in a worthy manner. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, but you know there's sin in your life that you haven't handled or addressed, again, I would encourage you to also let the elements pass you by. No one's gonna judge you for that. That's between you and the Lord. And this is a time again for you to, to pray and to repent and to, to get right with God. The table's important. It's a celebration. And after you receive the elements here in a moment, I would encourage you to bow your head and to spend some time in prayer. We're gonna have some extended time in prayer and then I'll come back up and lead us taking communion together. Men, please go ahead and serve the table.